Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. From September 15th to October 15th, we are honoring Hispanic Heritage Month. Each week, members of our church family will be sharing stories that acknowledge and celebrate Latino and Latina history from their lived experiences to the world at large. Hello, Bridgetown. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. For the past few years, Bridgetown has been on a journey of racial reconciliation and justice within our church family. In the book of Revelation, John describes heaven as a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Meaning this is no homogenous group, but the unification of one new multi-ethnic humanity. This vision of the future provides insight into the kind of church we should strive to become here and now, defined by our unity within diversity. To that end, we have been celebrating the stories of people of color within our church family. My name is Tyler Hands, one of the leaders here at Bridgetown and member of the Racial Justice Committee. And I'm Tiffany, co-chair of the Racial Justice Committee here at Bridgetown. This month, we are honoring Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from September 15th to October 15th. Hispanic Heritage Month is a time for us to celebrate the accomplishments of Latino people uh, in the U.S., as well as to celebrate their influence on our culture and society. Oregon has a surprising past when it comes to racism and systemic oppression. From before it was officially founded, Oregon was a hostile place for people of color. In an attempt to establish America's first all-white state, the provisional government of 1844 ordered black people out of the territory. By 1857, a constitution was adopted that banned all people of color from entrance, residence, and ownership of property. This founding idea of Oregon as a state was, was meant to be as a white utopia. So from the mid-1800s to now, you can trace the threads of institutional racism that still affect communities of color within Oregon. If you haven't had a chance so far, be sure to go back and listen to uh, our, our stories from Black History Month as well as AAPI Heritage Month. And you'll hear all about the history of oppression that has determined what neighborhoods families live in, what schools they attend, what jobs they are able to occupy, and essentially the weight of discrimination they each carry on their shoulders as just as a result of living within these state lines. So just as the generations before them, communities of color today are forced to navigate an inhospitable city. Just like that of Black History Month and AAPI Heritage Month, Hispanics, Latino, Latina community have a long history within the state of Oregon, really up and down the West Coast. Uh, as far back as 1821, with Mexico's independence from Spain, the nation gained uh, a territory that stretched from present-day Oregon-California state line all the way down south to Central America. Uh, this means that when the United States conquered Mexico's northern territory uh, in the mid-1800s, around the time of the official formation of the provincial government of Oregon, that uh, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Texas, Colorado were all acquired land from the Spanish, uh, Mexican, and indigenous cultures at that time, meaning 
spaces they did occupy and ruled with their, within their own sovereignty were all, all those borderlines were pushed way down south, closer to where we know them today. Uh, that being said, Tiffany, um, tell us about your story, where you're from in, in the U.S., uh, and kind of a bit about your uh, family history. Yes. So I am from New Mexico. It was one of those territories in the 1800s that was a part of Mexico. And really on my grandmother's side of my family, um, we have been there since the before the 1800s, as far back as we can trace. And so I've really grown up in a culture that is majority minority and been surrounded by a community that is um, Hispanic and indigenous. And then in 2015, moved up to Oregon and started to learn a lot about Oregon's racist past and why Oregon is majority white. When we talk about whole people groups, especially groups that have so much diversity in and among themselves, it is difficult to know which language best defines them. So why are we calling it Hispanic Heritage Month instead of Latino Latina Heritage Month? So Hispanic Heritage Month was founded in 1968. The term Hispanic was really meant to point to people of Spanish background from the Southwest, Central America, South America. Um, I grew up using that term because the term Latino or Latina felt like it was unique to Central and South America and people from the countries uh, there. And because I grew up in the United States, my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents all came from the United States, but still have a deep heritage and also ethnicity tying back to Mexico and also Spanish and uh, indigenous ancestry. Uh, My family always grew up referring to ourselves as Hispanic and feeling like that Latino label didn't really uh, land very well. Today, I know uh, a lot of communities who are Latino and Latina would prefer the term Latino or Latina uh, because they feel like it distances them from the colonialism that Hispanic refers to of the Spanish conquistadors coming and really taking over that part of the world. Um, Really, either term is great. And I think that uh, people of Latino and Latina background kind of get to choose which term they feel most comfortable with. The term Hispanic was meant to uh, be a broad term encompassing all those who either speak Spanish or are descendants from Spanish-speaking countries, uh, specifically Spain, Mexico, uh, the Caribbean, and Central and South America. Um, What's challenging about this is that it's incorporating a big group of people who don't necessarily share the same uh, cultural norms and, and, and standards and heritage, but it also omits others that might, for example, um, Brazilians are not included in this group because they speak Portuguese. So it's kind of an odd line to draw just based on language. The term Latino and Latina does include Portuguese speaking people in Brazil. And so you're right. It does encompass kind of a, a larger group and includes all of Central America and South America um, under that term. Right. And the origins of this particular um, Heritage Month begin and end on weird dates. Do you know why? I do know why. I'm sure you do. Well, because we looked it up together. (laughs) We did. So it goes from September 15th to October 15th because 
September 15th celebrates the independence of um, a few Central and South American countries. I won't name them because I don't have them memorized. Uh, it's the anniversary of independence for Latin American countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. You're making me look bad, Tyler. I read that right off of my <laughs> computer screen. Um, so it celebrates in the independence of these countries. It was just a week in September, uh, and then it got extended to being an entire month. So starts on September 15th with those independent celebrations and then goes for the month. Going back to the uh, history of Oregon in the mid-1800s, when the Mexican border moved uh, from the Oregon-California state line, there was undoubtedly a huge shift in culture and power. Uh, and the uh, Hispanic community at that time became known uh, for becoming uh, vaqueros and mule packers, railroad and migrant workers. Uh, vaqueros were um, cattlemen and and uh, and horsemen. They would they would drive cattle from the south up into Oregon and back again. Uh, they. Uh, would essentially inspire what we now know as the American cowboy. But undeniably, the, the Hispanic uh, community was a, a huge force in the economy and industry that drove Oregon forward. That's right. So then between 1910 and 1920, it's estimated that over a million Mexicans came over um, from Mexico and started to move into... Um, the southwestern region and up the coast. And so we see the population uh, in Oregon begin to grow in the 1900s. Yeah, while the new newly established border between down south between California and Mexico, there seemed to be a, a huge migration north of, of um, Hispanic communities coming into what's, what was now then America. But despite the million plus people that moved into the southwest of the United States, very few made their way into Oregon. And I can't help but wonder if that's because at the same time, for, for the decades leading up to this migration, Oregon was known for being so um, hostile toward uh, communities of color. It's, it's said that in the 19, by, by 1910, in that census, uh, no Mexicans lived in the state of Oregon. And yet they had to um, cross-examine cross that with other data saying that there were requested wire transfers on bake records from Mexico to Oregon, determining that there was at least 50 to a couple hundred Mexicans in the state, which leads you to believe, I suppose, that they refused to participate in these censuses. Likely they were fearful to be counted among uh, Oregonians, or they just didn't think they had a place there. But either way, there's a stark difference between the way that the Southwest, um, Southwest America grew in its population of Hispanic communities compared to that of Oregon. So then in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, the New Deal left um, out accommodations for people in the Latino community. Um, during that same decade, there was deportation sweeps happening. And so the um, Latino people who were in Oregon were pushed to rural towns or um, to farms and areas that were away from the city center uh, because that felt safer than uh to avoid the deportation sweeps. 
Yeah, it's it's recorded that in the 1930s, a half a million, so 500,000 Mexicans were were deported out of out of the country. Half of them were US citizens. 250,000 Americans with Mexican ancestry were forced to leave the country in the 1930s. I I don't even know how to like how do you res- <laughs> how do you res- respond to that? Just the 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 staggering discrimination alone in the country. Uh, but then, yeah, in in Oregon um, and and many other uh, states, they they went to rural areas to avoid being rounded up and deported. And not only that, through the 1920s and 30s, especially as you got into the Depression, um, work fell, wages fell, and Oregon became known for, uh, employers in Oregon became known for hiring white-only workers. So even in the spaces that the Hispanic community felt like they could go to be safe, they were being denied jobs simply for not being white. And it wasn't that the employers were hiring um, American-only workers, because a lot of these Hispanic community uh, members were American. They were American citizens. It's that Oregon employers were only hiring white workers because a lot of those white workers were, were not American citizens. So the, the staggering discrimination, even in these spaces is astonishing for how it has had long-term impacts on the industry. So then after the Great Depression, um, it seems like from what we've been reading, there's been a huge, there was a huge shift um, in the type of work that the Latino community could do in different states. Um, In New Mexico, for example, uh, my grandmother grew up on a farm. And then after the Great Depression, um, they lost that farm and uh, ended up making mattresses, uh, sewing mattresses for the army during World War II. So um, uh, a big shift in what the Latino community was able to do during that time. And basically that pattern continued for decades of, of hostility and discrimination and deportation, where even military operations were created to round up Hispanic communities and deport them. Military operations titled with derogatory names toward Hispanic communities. This, this continued for decades decades until eventually Hispanic communities began to organize, began to push back, back, began to start fighting for certain rights. So then by the 1980s, um, Latinos made up about 2.5% of Oregon population. And then during that decade, there came to be a lot of reform. So there was um, the Immigration Reform and Control Act passed by Congress in 1986. There was the Special Agricultural workers program. um, And that gave legal status to a lot of undocumented Latinos. Uh, And so then in Oregon, uh, because of that act, 23,000 Mexicans and Guatemalans received permanent residency. And the population continued to see a lot of growth in Oregon between 1980 and 1990. Uh, I believe it grew 70% from 1980 to 1990. So where does that lead us to today? So then from the 1990s, the population just continued to grow um, pretty dramatically. Uh, Today, 14% of the state's population 
is Latino. And for Oregonians under 18, Latinos make up 23% of the population. Uh, the majority of those Latinos in the state today um, were born in the U.S., and so it's not also um, just solely immigration. Um, unfortunately, some other statistics that go along with this community in Oregon are that um, they are more likely to be poor, uninsured, and undereducated than their white counterparts. And there's been a lot of community involvement around this, um, from the uh, Oregon Community Foundation uh, report in 2016, it found that 15% of Latinos are living in poverty compared to 11% um, of white people in the state. It feels so easy to me then to, to trace back the, the historic trends of racism in Oregon and systems of oppression that formed the, the Hispanic communities uh, hundred years ago and how they continue to form the communities now. That's right. And like we talked about a lot of the Latino community today in Oregon still lives outside of the city center in towns like Beaverton and Hillsborough and Gresham, um, where they were pushed out during the, between like the 1920s and 1950s and the communities just continued to grow in those areas. So there's, there's clearly a lot to grieve uh, when it comes to the history of the Hispanic community in Oregon. But uh, do you see ways that we can celebrate, ways that uh, culture is being embraced in, in the city? Absolutely. I mean, we continue to see the population growth just as showing that it's, you know, it's not as hostile as it once was. Um, a, a tangible example of that is the Portland Mercado, which was established in 2015 as Portland's... Um, first Latino food cart pod and marketplace. Um, Caleb Canales was the first Mexican-American head coach uh, in NBA history, and he coached for the Trailblazers. Um, <clears throat> a major Portland street was renamed for Cesar Chavez, um, and the following year, a Portland K-8 school was also named for Cesar Chavez. So we're starting to see a lot more reflection of the Latino community in Portland, and uh, there's a lot to celebrate. Is there ways that we can do the same in the church, celebrate Hispanic culture, you know, embrace all the, the beauty of, of the history of the Latino church? Yes, and... The goal of the Racial Justice Committee here at Bridgetown is to do just that, to make this a welcoming space. And we feel like we need to do more in order to make that clear that this is a space um, for people of all backgrounds and heritage and that like the expression of um, your heritage is welcome here. <clears throat> and so as a Latina woman here at Bridgetown, I've, I've definitely felt that shift and I've um, felt that shift over to just being welcome and curious and uh, that's what we're hoping everyone experiences um, when they come and walk through the doors of the church. Yeah, looking at scripture, it's undeniable that God is calling us as his followers, as followers of Jesus, to form a new humanity based on a multi-ethnic expression of the kingdom of God, crossing borders, cultural lines, unifying in our diversity. That's very clear. One thing to me that the American church is certainly better, probably better said the white church is known for it's, is its 
individualism. White Americans are known and pride themselves on their individualism. I wonder, uh, Tiffany, if there's something that the white American American church can learn from the Latino church about community, about how to be a a people who love and support and care for one another as a collective, as the people of God, as opposed to individuals who come to church on a Sunday. In my experience, coming from um, Hispanic churches in New Mexico to Bridgetown in Oregon, um, I would say, yes, absolutely. There are so many things that I would love to share from my culture and experience of like the warmth and the community and things like that. And I think that that's the point is if we just have a monolithic, like monoethnic expression of um, the way of Jesus, then you're not really getting to get all the great parts that diversity brings to the church. Um, for example, like coming to Bridgetown, the contemplation part of what Bridgetown has to offer, like that was a huge positive and thing that I could learn and leverage from that I had never gotten at any of the churches that I had been a part of before. And so I think as we just are um, good listeners to the different people inside of our church who have different backgrounds and ethnicity and experiences, and then we get to learn from each other and have a new expression, which is not just specific to one people group. So I think that's absolutely uh, true, what you're saying. There's things to learn from the Latino community, um, just like there's great things to learn and glean from so many other communities that are represented within Bridgetown. And I'm excited for the next few episodes where we get to hear from uh, people within the Latino community who attend Bridgetown and their stories and experiences um, because that's really the point of these podcasts is just to share stories and listen and hear people. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Hispanic heritage, Oregon's racist past, and Bridgetown's vision for the future, visit bridgetown.church justice.